Yeah, it's been a little bit of a crazy kind of the last three years. Can anybody here just say, I identify with you there, Rigby, the world is a bit crazy. Thank you for the two or three of you that are honest. But uh, I mean, just think about it from a little virus two to three years ago that just visited uh, our planet in quite disturbing ways. I mean, the myth of progress was put on trial, the idea that we can resolve all our problems through science and materialistic uh, uh, endeavors and uh, uh, human innovation. We, we, we came to the end of ourselves and we were running around like, like uh, dogs chasing cats. I mean, it really has been a crazy season. And uh, the implication of that in terms of how we did family, how we did church, how we did uh, work, transport systems, airlines, e economic uh, pressures. I mean, the world uh, was shaken and our kind of understanding going through that period was f this feeling like, like uh, the world will never be the same until you sort of revisit history and we realize that actually there, there are, have been and will be these cycles that every now and then uh, come and they are not, in the sovereignty of God, uh, instruments to punish the world as much as they're given to get our attention. And uh, I want to make a case for these last few years, and if that were not enough, the economic challenges coming out of COVID and then, you know, some global political leaders wanting to grab a large slice of other nations and wars and gas prices and fuel prices and, and uh, you know, presidents and prime ministers being changed all over the world and north-south inequalities and we look at the standoff between superpowers in terms of China and America and just the, the terrible painful journey uh, our beautiful friends in America are going through in terms of it feels like for us, my 67 years, I've never seen the world more crazy. That's just the word I want to use. And yet I want to come to you today and I want to make a case for us being both safe and satisfied in the sovereignty of God. I love the songs and the themes. And Lucy, you served us so well to honor the queen but point to the one that she honored through all the changes in her monarchy, all the different prime ministers, was it about 14 or something? She, she watched political leaders come and go. And in a sense, the God of the universe looks over the nations. He's not absent. He's not passive. But sometimes he lets the world go its own way. Because that leads to the cul-de-sacs that it needs. It leads, to, it leads to the disillusionment in the myth of progress or our own inadequacy. So I went for a little prayer walk in uh, Pitt's uh, neighborhood this morning. And this little illustration came into my mind around how do we move through the complexities of the world. So I want to give an illustration. I want to then read a passage. I want to try and unpack it in about an hour and a half, and hopefully your roasts won't burn. Put yourself, imagine yourself on a horse, on a saddle, 
And on the right hand side, your foot is in a thing called a stirrup. And on the left hand side, your foot is in a stirrup. Now one of the, the best things that dads can do, pastors can do, life group leaders can do, business leaders can do, political leaders can do, we've got to just do two things well. And if you'll come back this time next week, I'll share those two things with you. Okay, let me tell you now. Two things we've got to do is we've got to define reality and we've got to bring hope. What have we got to do? Define reality and we've got to bring hope. Now if you're on this horse and your foot is in the stirrup called reality and it's not in the other stirrup called hope and you want to move forward, you're going to find that you're going to tilt into the world of gloomy pessimism. You're going to be a gloomy pessimist because all you're going to see are the fault lines and everything wrong in the world. And I have noticed many Christian leaders and beautiful people shaken through these times we've gone through and they, they're tilting on this side of, oh, everything is out of control and the world is broken and we're never going to get... And very often through a personal comfort lens, we're feeling very unsettled. Of course, those are the gloomy pessimists. But let's just go over to the other side. You've got the people who just want to bring hope. Who are they called? They're not the gloomy pessimists. They don't have their foot in the, in the defining reality syrup. I should be riding in the Tour de France. Anyway, so their foot is not in the, in the it, it's, it's, it's only in the, in the stirrup of bringing hope. They're the sunny optimists. So you've got the gloomy pessimists and you've got the sunny optimists. And, and, and very often they don't find each other. And when you have conversations in social media and all the, the tensions and the polarization, it's because people are coming from one or two of those positions. What I love about the gospel is it never calls us only to define reality. It never calls us to only bring hope. It calls us not to be gloomy pessimists or sunny optimists. It calls us to be biblical realists. We understand the world is broken. It understands that all those years ago there was a, there was a mighty uh, declaration of independence from God and the trajectory of that has led not just to, 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 to trouble, it's a beautiful, still a beautiful world, there's still great sunsets, but it has led to complexity and fracture in human relationships, in identity issues. It is such a tragic, painful thing when people don't get on the horse of biblical reality and are coached by God to see the world through his eyes. I'm hoping to do that. I'm going to use a biblical example of that from the book of Jeremiah. You know that passage? When you ever want to send somebody a really nice encouraging verse? Which one is it? 29.11. Okay, hold that thought. If you think I'm a little bit quirky, you're 100% right. All the quirky ones, they applaud each other. <laughs> <It's like that. laughs> 
You see, what I love about the biblical narrative, it hasn't been written like in a little six-month period. It's been written over centuries, over thousands of years. And it, it overlaps the Old Testament world, and then Jesus broke into history, and it overlaps the New Testament world, and we get to see things not through a micro kind of a lens. We get a macro lens because the story of God is written through all of those bookends, the creation and the final redemption of the world. It speaks of both. So we're not left to ourselves to just you know, put our, our, the best version of ourselves on to make life work. Because I want to just say to you with all the love in my heart, the best version of you is not enough. The best version of you is a tyranny. The best version of you means you have to deny some things to get there. The beautiful appeal of the scripture, the way God moves toward us, the one who knows you the best, loves you the most, but he's got to burst a few of the bubbles in our lives. He's got to disillusion us. He's got to reveal the fault lines and where our security lies. And he does it with massive love and affection. So let me just say this. God has given you responsibility for a lot of things. What I love about the Swiss, they're probably the most responsible nation on planet Earth. They see problems coming and they've already got teams resolving it all from energy. And I'm following some of the stories I'm hearing from some of you. And I'm thinking, wow, yeah. We need you to come to South Africa. <laughs> You're very responsible. But I'm here to eyeball you. I hope I get an invite back again. I want to tell you, you're very responsible, but you are not in control. And that's what these last three, four years have showed us. We don't have all that is required. And so we need a higher narrative. We need to believe that God is at work in the world, that God genuinely works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called together for his good purposes. So just as in the way into this text, fear lives and rules in the heart of a believer who has forgotten God's sovereignty and grace. Let me say it again. Fear lives and rules in the heart even of a believer who has forgotten God's sovereignty and grace. And then this quote goes on to say, if left to myself, I should be afraid. The good news of the gospel is God in Christ has not left us to ourselves. And that Emmanuel, God with us, is still with us in sovereign power and authority and wisdom. Another little anonymous quote, security is not the absence of danger, but the presence of God. God is a very present help in time of trouble. How do we experience his presence as we, we move toward him? We raise our white flag, we put our defenses down. I come out of a non-Christian home, unchurched family, and uh, 42 years ago, this lady in the front row gave me John's gospel to read 
getting on a train. All I did was read John's gospel and it was like Jesus Christ came out of those pages into the depths of my soul. And I experienced the transforming power of this risen Christ. And there's never been a day that I have not been thankful that my life was gate crashed. But I did go and read John's gospel to open myself and to, to be exposed to my limitations and acknowledge that I could not. I had to be responsible even for my sin. But I couldn't be responsible for my salvation. I had to look to somebody who was in control. So love, any time you've got any spare books to give me, you know, a few good things could come out of that. So let's turn to the book of Jeremiah, which kind of echoes the story of Jesus when he says to his disciples, you are a city set on a hill. He's kind of talking in what later Augustine, one of the early Christian leaders, described in his book, The City of God. He says, wherever God is at work in the world, in the cities of the world, he has a city within the city of man. The city of God within the city of man. The city of God is the city that is there to serve. It, it, it's there to illuminate. It's there to, it doesn't become the city of man. It doesn't take over the city of man, but it influences and it radiates the blazing light of God to the world. And we see this prototype, this foreshadowing in the story of Jeremiah uh, with the exiles going into the Babylonian captivity. Okay. So let me just give you, yeah, we've got to read it, but I, I, I really want you to get why this passage exists. You know, a good preacher lays the foundation and then just whizzes through the points. There are five big points, but we'll just whiz through those. We've got to lay the foundation. What's going on in Jeremiah chapter 29? Before I read it, I want to tell you, they've got the prophetic uh, WWF, what do you call that, World Wrestling Federation thing. It's like, it's like there's this conflict going on between two prophets. The one's name is Jeremiah in the blue trunks. And in the other corner, we've got Hananiah. How many of you have called your kids, anybody here got a child called Hananiah? Now you know why. As we read this passage, there is no Hananiah that we would want to really, I mean, it's not like a bad, bad name, because if somebody put their hand up, I'd be in serious <laughs> trouble. I mean, keep loving your kid if it's, he, she, it's called Hananiah. This is a guy whose name was Hananiah. And Jeremiah is this faithful prophet one of the hardest jobs, leadership jobs, anybody has got. He's got to define the reality. But his competition is with Hananiah, who wants to be the good news story of the day, the sunny optimist. We're going to come through this and everything is fantastic. It's very plain, you're going to see it. And so J Jeremiah, uh, in chapter 27, gets told by God, to put on leather straps, I don't quite know what it looks like, and a yoke. Kind of a wooden cradle thing like you put on oxen. He's told to put this on as a prophetic sign. And then he gets told, he says, go to my people, Israel, in Judah. Whole bunch of people have already been taken off by Nebuchadnezzar into exile. 
They're already in Babylon. They're already being assimilated into the culture. And now, back home. Jeremiah gets told, go to the people and wear this yoke and say to them, thus says the Lord, submit to Nebuchadnezzar. What? The guy who's stolen our family members? Submit to Nebuchadnezzar. What? The guy who's stolen all the temple gold uh, dishes and, and serving paraphernalia from the temple and taken it? Yes, submit to Nebuchadnezzar. But while he prophesies, he says, and to all the surrounding nations, submit to Nebuchadnezzar, because I've ordained in my sovereign rulership that he's going to rule as a kingdom over all nations, and he's going to reign over my own people because they have wandered into idolatry. So be very careful of language like, these are God's chosen people, they will never ever have to suffer the consequences of, of their idolatry whether they are Jews or Christians or uh, anybody, there are consequences for violating Yahweh's law. And Jeremiah is saying, your captivity into Babylon is not Nebuchadnezzar's idea, it is Yahweh's idea. And God knows how to send his people into tough times and to keep them secure and to preserve their lives even if the circumstances are less than ideal. How many of you are excited about that? We feel like we want to obligate God to the perfect set of circumstances and then when the world gets shaken up according to Hebrews 12, we don't quite know how to make sense of it. And so he says, this is what's happening. In the other corner, Hananiah is also there with the priests and the, the, the rulers and the temporary king who's there. And, and uh, he loudly, he says these words to everybody that's there. He says, uh, thus says the Lord, in two years time, I am going to break that yoke of Nebuchadnezzar over my own people. I am going to dismantle his power and in two years time all the temple furnishings are coming back to Jerusalem. The royal family are coming back to Jerusalem. Everything's going to be amazing. Now you've got a problem. What I love about scripture, it's, it, it records the history of these moments and we look at and we think, oh my dear, what is going on there? And Hananiah takes Jeremiah down has him in a pretzel grip or whatever you call it. And he's, he's like, and, and Jeremiah says, I'll give up. And he leaves. Or before he leaves, he just says very like tongue in cheek. He says, oh, I wish what you're saying is true. May it be so. What a wonderful outcome if it were true. He goes away and a, a little while later, God speaks to him. He says, Jeremiah, you know that yoke of wood and those straps that I put on you representing my purposes and plans for my own people in the, the known world at the time that includes nations being raised and others falling. He says, you know, those guys, I'm going to turn that wooden yoke into a yoke of iron. Whatever they thought they could get free on, that, you're going to find that the, the, the next wave of captivity is going to be worse than anything they could have ever experienced. And that's exactly what happened. But more than that, Jeremiah gets told 
go and visit Hananiah. And some of you will know this. It's not a very wonderful story. He goes to, to Hananiah and he says, what you've prophesied is lies in the name of Yahweh. And this has consequences. And Yahweh says, you're going to die. A few months later, Hananiah dies. And the word of the Lord came true through Jeremiah. And Jeremiah now is anticipating, okay, so he's the prophet for the home game. He's just prophesied the home game message to the people in Jerusalem. But he's also the prophet to the away match. And so he sends a letter, which is what we're going to read, which he tells his people who are now exiles. Isn't that a wonderful word? It's what Peter calls us, if you're a Christian, he calls you elect. The doctrines of election. You've been elected in Jesus. He says you are an elect exile scattered all over the world. And folk, there's some truth in a church like this. There's, a tr- there's truth in a, one of our congregations in Cape Town. It's full of, of economic refugees from southern Africa. Uh, those people love God, but they're exiles. They've been brought for various reasons. And you could even come into cities like this for the wrong reasons, and God could turn them into the right reasons. It's true. And the same is what has happened back home. But here is the amazing uh, away match letter that he writes on the screen. I'd love you just to read it with me. This is the text of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and to all the others Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah the queen mother, the court officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalsmiths had been exiled from Jerusalem. The letter was entrusted to Elisa, son of Shaphan, and uh, Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to, the king, to, send to King Nebuchadnezzar in, in Babylon. It stated, drum solo. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles who were carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. That's only if you're married. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the prosperity of the city to which I've sent you as exiles. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for if it prospers, you too will prosper. For this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, do not be deceived by the prophets and diviners among you and do not listen to the dreams you elicit from them for they are falsely prophesying to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord, for this is what the Lord says. When Babylon's Babylon's 70 years are complete, I will attend to you and confirm my promise to restore you to this place For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope, a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore you from captivity and gather you from all the nations and places to which I have banished you, declares the Lord. I will restore you to the place from which I sent you into exile. Okay. 
got to just pop a bubble here. Next time you use Jeremiah 29 verse 11 as an encouragement prophecy, it's okay. It's not wrong or sinful to do that. Just remember that it was never given to an individual. It was given to the collective. It was given to the nation in exile. And the prophet is defining the reality and he's bringing hope and the hope to the nation is that God is going to restore them. We've got to be very careful in our Western expressive individualistic culture that we don't three read the lens through that, that cultural perspective, that it's all about me. When God is speaking, he's speaking to his, his people, the redeemed, who've gone AWOL from the covenant. And God now lets them go under his firm, disciplined hand. And he says, even in this exile, even in these difficult times, even though you have forsaken me, even though you're on the run, run from me, I will continue to love you, to care for you. And I'm anticipating a, a day in the future where your hearts will turn, you'll come to me, you'll call upon me, and you will see a new day for my people. What's not written in this letter is what he told Hananiah. That he said, what's ever happening to my people Israel, worse is going to come on Nebuchadnezzar for being so willing to be a hand of discipline to my people. So for God in his sovereignty and his wisdom, nobody gets away with anything, even those who are persecuting Israel and even those who are within Israel who are violating the covenant. So, okay. Notice in the letter, it's, it's uh, uh, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away. That's the sovereign will of God. And this message is about being safe and secure in that sovereignty, even when the world is gone crazy. Here are four things. Quickly, are you ready? Yes. Number one, God says to his own people, who are going into Babylon, a whole new cultural experience. The world has changed from anything they knew. He says, I want you to move all the way in. I want you to live there. I want you to move all the way in. What was happening is some of the exiles were living just outside the city. Don't think geographically. Think of the metaphor. They're not really engaging in the culture. They're a little bit aloof. They're the guys who live in Cape Town, but they got this place in Hermanus and are starting to live in Hermanus more and more and more than the guys in Cape Town. Now, I don't blame you. Very nice place. But from just using that as an example, God is saying, you can't live there. You can rest there, have some fun there. But what you've got to do is I want you to get your roots. And notice the language he says in verse 5. Build houses and settle down. I mean, it could be rent houses and settle down, but it's this issue of being vested in your moment in history, it's embracing a theology of place. It's for you saying, under the sovereign will of God, I am going to bed down and be a blessing where I am and stop fantasizing of, about how life can be better somewhere else, bigger, better, faster. I want you to be a blessing where you are in less than ideal circumstances. Can I have a yeah? You can't change the whole of Switzerland or the whole of Zurgo. But you and I can change the part 
of our neighborhoods and our working environments where we live, the lives we touch, the city of man can begin to experience something supernatural as the city of God, the community of God, this colony of heaven on earth starts to live by different values when we, when we march to a different drumbeat, when we sing to a different hymn sheet. It is supernatural. What's interesting about Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar is they didn't kill the elite of Israel. Oh no, very strategic. They wanted to bring them in because they wanted their skills. They wanted their expertise. They wanted their own culture discipled by these really, really skilled craftsmen from Jerusalem. I mean, they've got a history in building amazing things down there. And so Jeremiah's point is, move all the way in. Bring your skills to the city. Even the place that has got massive fault lines. Even the place that is rejecting your God. Even the place that is blaspheming the name of Christ every day. Live like a colony of heaven on earth. Live like the presence of the future. Hebrews 5 verse 6 says we've tasted of the powers of the coming age. When you become a Christian, you are the most futuristic people on planet earth. You've already are siphoning out of tomorrow's perfect new order that Jesus has. You're siphoning the principles, the life, the power of that into our day-to-day activity. So number one, move all the way in. That's how you become a blessing. Not by living down by the Kibar River and just keeping your distance because these horrible Babylonians might contaminate us. Number two, stay distinct. Move right in, but don't get assimilated. Move right in, don't get colonized. Move right in and be different. Some of you are thinking, oh, brilliant, I'm going to get an earring <laughs> or a tattoo. No, that's superficial stuff. You can have that. It's not, I mean, if, you, if you're teenagers, get your parents' permission. <laughs> My wife's case, she's got one on her wrist here. Let's not sweat the small stuff. It's not an issue. So here's the thing. The God of this world has got an agenda for our lives. And while we are not giving ourselves to God's agenda to go in and bless and influence, If we're on the back foot of that, I want to tell you a law. It's a law of life. We are being colonized. We are, I don't know about you, and I'm not one of those like moral policemen who tell people don't do this and don't do that. But I mean, my wife and I, we are finding it increasingly difficult to find a single thing to watch on Netflix. And we're not prudes or whatever it is. It just seems like what comes on a Netflix is the agenda of culture to colonize us except right inside our homes. And if we're not pushing back the darkness of that and finding our joy in something superior, we're being shaped and colonized. And the Babylonian agenda, the worldly agenda, the agenda from the king, the God of this age, is to assimilate us. 
to draw us in. How do you cook a frog? Slowly, if it's alive. Slowly. And I'm seeing too many people, and we're wondering why the world is in such a mess. Time for the city of God to begin to emerge and shine brighter within the city of men. So the Babylonians wanted to assimilate them. The false prophets wanted to separate themselves from them. Oh, we've got to be separate. Don't smoke, don't chew, don't mix with boys who do. That like legalistic thing. The biblical answer is not assimilation or separatism. The biblical answer is be a prophetic presence of the new day. Be a prophetic presence of Jesus. Be this community of people. Be that in business. Be that in relationships. Be that in your neighborhood. Be that in the way we are kind and we serve and we bear the fruit of the Spirit in our, in our day-to-day lives. The city of God doesn't take over the city of man in this life. There is a city that's coming down out of heaven called the New Jerusalem. All the other cities are scrapped. They've come to ruin. To be part of the city of God, to be part of these new communities, is to be part of that coming future. To say, that's my home. That's where I belong. When we get that sense of spiritual identity and rootedness, then we understand we don't need a Christian majority to change your world. My dear friends, we do not need a Christian majority. We do not need Christian nationalism. We need a compelling minority of devoted Jesus followers. Where we demonstrate an alternative city within the city. A new society, a new community who steward the gifts of sex and money and influence and family in ways that are reflective in a broken, crazy world of being the city within the city. And the beauty of the gospel is it frees us from wearing the sheriff badges of moralism. It frees us from becoming religious, angry, judgmental and hypocrite. Hypocrites now. We're these subversives. We have mystery. There's intrigue. We're both witty and joyful. And people look at us and they think, are you on drugs or is there something you need to tell? Number one, move all the way in. Number two, be different. Number three, increase. Do not decrease in numbers. I know you need to hear the Lord on these things and I'm not putting, this is just to get our attention. Here these guys are going into exile and God says, start families, get, get married, that order, start families, start businesses, build houses, take a longer view on these things. You're going to be around for a multi-generational future and kids are a part of that and that's why it's so important that Lyft has this amazing kids ministry because we're saying we are not just a church for adult information. We're here because all of us need Jesus. All of us need transformation. All of us need to be discipled in the truths of the gospel. And he says, multiply there 
do not decrease. Now this isn't a church growth strategy. I've just have lots of kids. But the metaphor of the people of God growing, maturing, getting, uh, 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 you know, being enlarged, being freed from fear because the world we're in, are you going to bring kids into this world that is so broken and difficult? No. Gospel calls us to take our roots in the culture and to, and to uh, see kids. There's not an interruption in that, but to, to see them as a blessing. Part of how we grow, just moving to the church a little, is that we have a heart for people. And I want to announce the secret weapon for, for a new influx of people. I'm not saying I've got the secret and you know here's a recipe I'm selling. I'm saying just think about this. Most of the people that come and visit a church like this have come because they've been invited. And the people who say yes to that have borne witness to, wow, you're, you're kind, you're gentle, you admit your mistakes, you're not, a, you're not arrogant. Wow, I'd love to see what, what that's about. The secret weapon is called hospitality. It happens around our dining room tables, it happens here on a Sunday. Hospitality, and I think I might have shared this in the past, but it's a reminder, the word hospitality is the exact opposite of the word xenophobia. Xenophobia is the fear of strangers. All those horrible Babylonians out there, and we're so glad we can retreat into our nice, comfortable church community. No, no. Hospitality, we taught, practice hospitality with strangers. And the word hospitality is xenos, the word uh, 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 xenophobia is xenosphobia, fear of strangers. Xenos is strangers. And now it's hospitality is love of strangers in the Greek. And so this notion of just having this closed friendship circle, the beauty of the gospel is it always keeps making the circle bigger. We keep wanting to invite new people into our lives and into our experience. And it's almost blasphemous to think, oh, I'm so glad my name's written in heaven and that's a done deal. No, we're always those who are making room at the table for those who yet to feast on the meal of God's grace. Fourthly, Seek the shalom of the city. I'm saying it again. Move all the way in. Be distinct or different. Increase, do not decrease. Number four, seek the shalom of the city. Look what he says uh, in, in the passage. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you. I've carried you into exile. Seek the peace of that city. My dear, this is so counterintuitive. It's so countercultural. Those horrible Babylonians... How can I want to see them succeed? How can I want to see those people who deny you, who blaspheme your name? He says, pray to the Lord, even for that city. My dear, because if it prospers, if it does well, you'll be doing well within it. Notice where the prosperity comes from. It's not pray for my prosperity. It's pray for a prosperity for the city that you're in or for the nation that you're in. As you pray for that, we can see the blessing of God. Now do you know that in ancient literature there's not a single occurrence of any group of religious people ever being called to pray for their, for their oppressors, their captors, foreign kings who've dominated, 
foreign kings who came down to Jerusalem, ransacked the temple, upset the whole religious order of life, who murdered some of those who resisted. And some of these exiles would have had memories of some of our brothers and sisters died in that first wave of occupation of Israel. I just want to say it, it's a hard attitude. It's seek the flourishing of both the city of man and the city of God. That's why it's important to underwrite this expression so that it is financially strong and being able to do the things that God has called, the things that he uniquely wants to do in and through the riverbed of this community. The marks of the citizens of heaven the best marks is that they are the best citizens of the cities of man. They're not aloof, they're not arrogant, they're not prideful. And of course, for some of you, those of you who have the, the wisdom, the economic wisdom, plant vineyards. How many of you know vineyards, you can't have good wine in like three or five years. You need some aged vines, like Christa, 60 years old, that's an aged vine. Well-aged vine, like old and decrepit vine. He's my friend, I can say. My point is, it seems like God had, had wanted them to plant vineyards. It means he had a long term, and Jeremiah, of course, unpacks that. Yeah. Become economically active. Okay. And then I'd say, listen to God's plans when you gather in prayer meetings, in your life groups, when you're praying together. Ask that question, Lord, what are your plans? I know the plans I have for you. Plans to make you a blessing in the city. What does that look like? And you guys are doing great stuff with kids ministry, great stuff with love on a hanger and kiddies hung upside down. I can't remember all the names, but we, we got these things. Okay, last one, and then I'm through. I know I've, sp I've spoken a lot. I hope you can feel like the weight of my desire to help more than wanting to be heard. I want to help. Last one, it's not, there's no slide for it apart from the title. Refuse short-termism and false narratives. Where's that in the passage? It's the last point Jeremiah makes before he says, I know the plans I have for you. Or related to that, maybe just after. He says, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which cause you which you have caused to be dreamed in other words you longing for even though you're in exile now don't listen to those guys who still sprouting the rubbish and don't listen even to your own dreams that are suggesting to you some softer landing for the season you're in he says for they prophesy falsely to you in my name i have not sent them says the lord like a little bit of a hananiah's already dead but he wants all the prophets to know you are not helping the people of God if you just give them the sunny optimism pitch. Everything is just going to be wonderful and whatever you thought was going to be. And that's why Jeremiah said 70 years. But the thing is, Jeremiah had prophets for centuries before that warning Israel that they were going to go into exile as a result of uh, their, their apostasy, etc., etc. So what does it mean then to not listen to the false narratives here in the 21st century. I'm so glad you've asked this question. The Hananiah type voices, the social media noise. I want to ask you, what is the loudest voice in your life right now? I want to ask you, what should be 
the loudest voice? What should be the lens through which we read all other voices? Jeremiah does. He lifts up the lens of past prophecies. He lifts up the lens of his own prophecies. He listens to Hananiah and he says, dislike, not listening to that, defriend. If you can't influence, you're being influenced. I just want to make a cautionary uh, uh, appeal to you. Be careful of the voices of culture, the fake news, the conspiracy theories that actually lead to polarization. You should see what's happening in America. It is so sad. We cannot afford that. We need to find each other. And that's what God was calling the people to in exile. Be this new community. Don't let the false narratives tell you. Beware of short-termism. Oh, only two years and then everything's hunky-dory. He says, no, build for the long haul. In Cologne, there's a cathedral called the Cologne Cathedral. Started being built in 1248. Only finished in 1880. I've been to Cologne. Those first architects of the Cologne Cathedral knew that their children and their children's children would never see the final product. The stonemasons that built the rocks knew that as they trained their sons to build, to to, uh, sharpen stone and all that, they knew that their children's children would never ever see part of it. 632 years later, that's when the Cologne Cathedral was finished due to wars in Europe, etc., etc. But in that first generation, the carpenters went and planted the forests around the cathedral. And they anticipated the day, centuries later, when they would need benches and they would need beams at the top. Why were they able to do that? Because they had a narrative. They had a vision of what God was doing in their day and they were able to see something beyond their day and they saw what was beyond their day as worth fighting for in their day and folk for our children's children we need to reclaim the vision of the gospel to build these life-giving communities and yes we might not get everything sorted out we've just acquired a 20 a 12 and a half acre property we're doing a a education vision for kids. This year we would have had 2,000 kids go through. You know what gets me excited? The fact that over 100 years we've got 400,000 lives that will be transformed. And you know what's amazing? We won't be there. So we have redefined legacy as what lives on in discipleship, what lives on in the people we shape and train and equip. Give it back to me. Five things God's saying to us out of this passage to be his city within the city of man. Number one, all the way in. Number two, be distinct. Number three, increase. Do not decrease. Go after the sheep that are a bit naughty. Gather people in your life groups that haven't been coming for a while. Don't frown at them. You don't know what they're going through. Number four, Seek the welfare of the city. Be a blessing. Invite the city into your city. Be hospitable. Thank you so much. Give this man a round of applause. It was brilliant. Okay. Or a, or a round of drinks. One of, the, one of the two. Okay. And the last point is refuse the counter-narratives. 
the false narratives of our day. Father, yeah, thank you for lift, thank you for yeah, the fact that you're among us in worship. Thank you that we've been able to uh, celebrate the life of Queen Elizabeth. Thank you that we're able to come under the high king of heaven and that today we can, from the depths of our hearts, confess, Lord, that we are safe and secure in your sovereign rule. That we can get on the horse with saddled up for embracing reality and embracing hope. Once you do a deep work in our hearts, once you lay that foundation into our lives in the season we're in, and make us a blessing in our moment in history. In Christ's name. Amen.